Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And we'll share our thoughts on how these questions and potential answers can impact what we do in international education. So we'll start with the first question, and like we do each week, we take our news stories uh, from our themes for our news stories uh, from our newsletter that comes out on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. I'm dropping the link to the most recent edition into the chat so you can have that for your reference purposes and I'll also share with you where you can subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, we also have added in recent weeks, we've added the opportunity to, sub to subscribe on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn's one of their new features for creators has allowed uh, us to share our newsletter also through LinkedIn. So if you'd much rather prefer to get that on LinkedIn, please uh, do subscribe via our LinkedIn uh, profile. That will come in on Mondays around 9 a.m. Eastern. So our our questions come from that newsletter that we, we see uh, released each week we, where we see themes developing in some of the news stories that we, we cover and providing our hot takes on. And today on Wednesdays, uh, we go live a little bit more in depth into what those particular news stories might mean for us in our field. So our first question of the day is one that impacts a lot of us personally who have been in international admissions, international student recruitment for a number of years. And the question is, will there be a return to normal international recruiting? And I say normal because we all wish we could go back. Maybe some of us don't, but we probably wish we could go back to a time when uh, we didn't have to worry about uh, getting tests before we travel to certain countries or getting tested before we leave certain countries uh, and having vaccinations, which we know we now have to have uh, to travel to most countries in the world. So we, we are in a position where uh, our what used to be our norm uh, for international student recruitment, where we would go on a week, two weeks, three weeks on a tour, perhaps visiting multiple countries, six, seven, eight countries in two, three week period. That is a real impractical option moving forward, uh, given the restrictions that currently exist. Uh, given the restrictions that your campus might have on travel, restrictions that your campus has probably had for a number of years in terms of what, where you can travel, where you can't travel. And I say that uh, in, one, in one respect because a, uh, a Pi News article that I'm dropped the, dropping the link to in the chat uh, referenced uh, booking surge as confidence in international recruitment travel returns. I don't think it's necessarily confidence uh, if it is confidence in international travel, it's, it's misplaced. I think it is, frankly, um, what we're seeing here now is it's possible to travel again. And I know colleagues who are on the road right now. Uh, I know tour providers that had gone digital during the pandemic are now trying to get their uh, tours back up and running and are probably having a lot of success in terms of getting interest in them because there's that need now to get back out or the perceived need to get back out and really um, make an effort to, uh, to kind of get back to the way it used to be. Uh, my concern is... Uh, where, what, whether or not the lessons we learned during the pandemic are being forgotten so quickly. And it's just people who like to get out and travel and uh, get back out there and, and meet students. And frankly, there is a lot of joy in that. 
uh, professionally, I, I, I look back to some of my, uh, my best moments uh, uh, in the profession and getting to, getting to meet the students and the parents of the students that I've been recruiting, uh, having those conversations with them, sharing a, a, a coffee or a tea with them, having a meal with them. Uh, those are precious moments for me, and those are ones that, frankly, I'll never forget. And they really provided me a, an amazing foundation for why I do what I do. Uh, and in international education when I was on the recruitment side. And what I think has happened is you, you have a lot of people, and international recruiters are human too, uh, that had a pent-up uh, uh, two years of not being able to travel and uh, really a pent-up desire to get back out there as quickly as possible and to get back in front of students directly. And when I said earlier, I think that some of the lessons uh, of the pandemic are being lost is – one thing I, I, I all to a, to a person when I talk to uh, uh, colleagues at different institutions, uh, asking them about what was the impact of going all virtual uh, in the last two years? Uh, how did that impact your numbers? Where were your applications coming from? And uh, what what to a person they would say that we were getting ourselves in front of students we would never see if we were traveling. And in, from countries that we would never go to, uh, we were seeing at these virtual fairs and getting them to apply. And potentially these are the ones that are going to enroll and maybe have already enrolled this past fall. And that's the piece that I think is uh, uh, the lesson that is going to be lost very quickly if we all just try and revert to type when it comes to international student recruitment. And we've already seen at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw FPP, EduMedia, decide that they're going away completely from physical in-person events, that they're going strictly virtual and online and are, do, are, are doing so in part because of the, uh, of the efficiencies that are, are, are in place when you have virtual events versus in-person versus in events. The environmental impact is one a factor that I don't think we can really ignore. Uh, we have uh, our individual campuses are looking at all the different ways that they can become more environmentally conscious in terms of their, not only their, uh, how they power their campuses uh, with uh, campuses uh, investing heavily in solar uh, facilities on their own campuses uh, that uh, looking at uh, where their investments go in uh, that's, that's part of the part of the conversation now, but it's also, it's entered in, entering into the mix and there are colleagues uh, that I was doing uh, when the pandemic hit, I was originally planning to be leading a group of uh, Davis colleges to uh, visit UWC uh, international schools around the world in Europe and Asia. And when we had to shift to virtual, uh, we got we got institutions that joined in that were joining in specifically because they didn't want to do uh, physical travel to those countries because they're conscious about the, the environmental impact of what them getting on a plane, traveling halfway around the world and going to a series of schools in multiple countries over a period of two, two weeks to a month, what that did to the environment. And they're becoming, and that's driving decision making on a number of campuses now. So will there be a return to normal? And maybe that's not as impactful in other countries, but I, I don't think that uh, the environmental impact is necessarily less significant in uh, in British or Canadian or Australian universities' uh, minds uh, that they may be uh, relying more on their agent networks moving forward. There are campuses who specifically say they're 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 conscious about why and when they need to get on a plane to go somewhere uh, to to recruit students. 
So it really needs to be a, a cost-benefit analysis that our institutions will, do, will likely be doing more of in the coming years when it comes to, is this trip worth the impact it's going to have? Is it going to generate the return that we need, but also balance that against the environmental impact that it's going to have? Uh, and you, you add into this just the, the, the sheer challenges you might face these days in terms of having to get tested before or after leaving, uh, before departure or, or before, de before arrival in certain countries and before departure in certain countries to get to the next country. If you're doing a multiple country tour, that can be very taxing and you never know how that will impact flights and uh, your ability to get on flights if uh, you don't get the test results in time. Uh, so it's really something you want to be paying particular attention to because it adds extra layers to an already um, already challenging environment to travel in internationally uh, with flights not really coming back to full schedules yet uh, on top of the initial challenges of visas and other entry issues that you might have in certain countries. So you really need to be circumspect in terms of how you approach recruitment from this day, this point forward with a whole host of other issues that you never had before. So I think from my perspective, uh, there isn't uh, a return to normal uh, for international student recruitment uh, in terms of the travel piece. I think there will be tours that go on, there will be travel that is done, uh, but in the end, uh, things have changed. Uh, the way we do things is changing. Uh, the way we think about why, where, where we go, why we go, and how, what the impact it has, positive and negative, on the planet and on who we are as individuals, that matters now. So I think the return to normal is, isn't, hap isn't happening. And the, the worst phrase we, we, talk, we can ever uh, talk about these days is we're going to have a new normal. And that new normal is going to be very different than what we were used to uh, in terms of student recruitment. Uh, the virtual piece, I think, has to continue. Uh, in terms of opportunities and frankly for colleges and universities that saw saw the pandemic really as an opportunity to to engage in 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 online recruitment and virtual fairs and these types of things those those colleges aren't the ones that are going to be getting on planes anytime soon because they 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 couldn't afford it in the first place so they saw lower cost options for uh, paying $2,000 for a four-hour fair that targets an entire region of the world and being able to, in terms of generating applications and potential enrollments as a result of participation in that fair as a much more, uh, much wiser investment, frankly, than uh, paying three, four times that to go on a recruitment tour to cover those same countries and um, go to, and, and the time that it would take to go to all those countries. Uh, it's just not as uh, a safe a bet uh, as, it, as it had been previously. So I think the, the, the new normal for international recruitment is going to be vastly different. And I think the opportunity for uh, virtual will continue. The opportunity when we do travel will certainly need to be more bang for the buck in terms of the impact that we can have. Uh, I personally, if I'm on the ins institutional side right now, I'm focusing on my multiplier effect I can have with counselors, with Education USA advisors, with agents, with uh, the folks who can be on the ground for me as an institution rep that will help uh, generate the kind of uh, 
in-person attention that I I want to have happen with prospective students and their parents that I can't do directly in every country I want to be in. And that in-person representation is going to be the difference maker uh, for for me in enrolling a class that I need on my campus. The travel is great. And maybe if you're you're in the springtime, I've heard a number of colleges say, hey, we'll still do virtual fairs uh, as an uh, interest generator, and then maybe focus our travel that we do on admitted student events in the springtime. So I think that's a more realistic and practical way of approaching travel uh, in the future rather than the full, full on f- tours and three, four weeks gone at a time where you're traveling around the world and um, meeting students and parents in a variety of locations. I, it's just, it doesn't seem like the best investment of time and resources for me if I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm uh, planning a bu- uh, have a budget to, uh, to recruit for my institution. I can get more coverage uh, in more places uh, and hopefully with better results in terms of if I have the right comp plan and the right follow-up uh, in plan in place to, uh, to respond to needs than I could if I'm in person. So that's, uh, there's nothing to beat, nothing, certainly nothing you can beat, uh, nothing that will beat the in-person opportunities and the, that personal connection, shaking that father's hand or that mother's hand uh, of a student that you might be recruiting and being that institution for that, uh, that student, for that parent. Uh, but I really think that, that the time of full-on tours all the time is, is, uh, is not the way to go uh, if I'm on the recruitment side. And I have a number of colleagues who run their, run their own tour businesses that will, will take issue with what I'm saying. But uh, I think when you're doing focused one, one or two country tours, maybe, uh, you, can, you can justify that if you're, if, you're, if you're smart about how you plan it and who you go with. But in terms of the, the uh, world travelers, in terms of multiple countries in a three, four-week period, I don't think those are the practical and best uses of institutional resources moving forward. So that's question number one. Now, question number two is a bit more of an intellectual exercise. And the reason I say that is the question is, are BRICS countries playing well with others? Now, for those not familiar, BRICS Uh, Countries are Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Those are kind of that next tier. And uh, obviously China and India are probably the two in that (coughs) that maybe are – uh, much brought, much stronger than uh, the the rest of uh, rest of the world, rest of the uh, the of the others in that mix, Brazil, Russia, and South Africa. But they, as a block, share a lot in common. And a, an old colleague I, I used to uh, used to know well uh, has written extensively about this uh, in recent days and weeks uh, on her blog. Uh, Wendy Williamson is her name, and she is made, she makes reference to how coordinated these countries are uh, in their messaging and who they support and uh, what they've what they will do uh, together. Uh, that might seem out of step with what uh, we in the West might expect, and that's something that I think uh, you want to take uh, take in, into consideration when you're when you're looking at world events. Obviously, we're dealing in a situation now uh, with the invasion of um, Ukraine by Russia that the, uh, the BRICS countries are certainly not 
shouting from the rooftops against what Putin is doing uh, in Ukraine. They are very much either, they, whenever UN resolutions have come up regarding uh, uh, condemning Russia for its actions in Ukraine or removing Russia from uh, the Human Rights Commission in the uh, committee in, uh, in the UN, you don't see Brazil, India, China, or South Africa voting against Russia are voting to condemn them. Uh, you see them abstaining or you see them voting no. Uh, you've seen India uh, be an outlet for buying Russian oil and gas. Uh, you've seen China uh, very clearly uh, not uh, be vocal supporters of what um, uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but you also uh, you also see a lot of the rhetoric that they're using uh, to talk about this, what's happening in the Ukraine, to minimize uh, what Putin is actually doing there. Uh, there's an article that uh, New York Times put out this past week, the link's in the, in the chat, uh, where it shows that um, China is rallying domestic sympathy for Russia because uh, it's a reaction against the West. Uh, they're seeing Russia, uh, China and Russia have become quite cozy in the last uh, five, 10 years, uh, 15 years, and they're not planning to turn their back on Russia anytime soon. Uh, you see Russia uh, really uh, looking for allies uh, and not getting anybody who's really going to uh, get on on their on their on the bandwagon and really share their support for for what Russia's done in Ukraine. Uh, what uh, China is trying to stay neutral, at least in the political side of things, but what they're doing is. Uh, Chinese universities, in this quote from the Times, have organized classes to give students a correct understanding of the war, often highlighting Russia's grievances with the West. Priority newspapers have run a series of com commentaries blaming the United States for the conflict. So uh, what uh, we see is it's no longer just Russia invading uh, Ukraine, it's Russia against the West. And that's why they've had to do this, because they're afraid of security concerns, that they don't want NATO at their borders, which they already have with the Baltic states uh, and Poland and others. So you see Russia's reaction, uh, and it has been one clearly uh, feeling like the, uh, Putin is feeling like he's been backed into a corner. But you also see uh, you see some other challenges with uh, uh, with how how it's being perceived. Different issues like this are being perceived. Um, now, are they all, are all the BRICS countries um, against the West? Uh, I think South Africa and Brazil may be less likely to be in the authoritarian camp of Russia and India and China. Um, is India in the in the authoritarian camp, some would say, uh, currently under uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, not been the most uh, most uh, uh, free and fair of, uh, of elections and uh, in terms of his uh, Hindu Nationalist Party has, has certainly caused a number of uh, issues uh, in, uh, in terms of restrictions on, free, on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that type of thing in India. Uh, and as I said, they've, they're buying Russian oil. But uh, India doesn't always play, play well with uh, all of their BRICS, uh, BRICS uh, colleagues. Uh, in fact, 
um, when it comes to international education, we're seeing that uh, play out now. Uh, we've we've known uh, and we've talked about China and how because they've kept their borders closed uh, longer than any other country uh, to, uh, to uh, students other than self-select elites going to NY Shanghai or Duke Kunshan and some of the British uh, universities that have campuses in China. You see um, China for the most part uh, saying if hey students from uh, from South Asia. Students from Africa, sorry, can't come back in yet. Uh, we don't have any plans to reopen anytime soon, and we're not, uh, we don't really need you back here. So that has caused basically these students in these countries that had, had wanted to start, that had be, maybe begun their education in China, but forced to return home during when the pandemic hit. Uh, they have been, for the last two years, uh, taking their classes on their mobile devices, on their phones, and paying whatever fees that they pay to China for those uh, those classes. But China, I think, has done a lot of damage to its reputation when it comes to international education. Um, and part of that is just the unwillingness to budge and, and from their zero COVID policies. And it's you hear some of, some of the things that are coming out of Shanghai right now, uh, with a city of 26 million people been on lockdown for the better part of two weeks. Uh, that there's food shortages, running out of uh, medical tr medical necessities, all of these things that are impacting uh, residents' lives in Shanghai, one of the largest cities in the world, um, because of the zero tolerance policy. And frankly, we'll talk about it next week. It'll be in our newsletter on Monday. Uh, the State Department's actually uh, saying don't travel to China. It's already a level four country, or level one for COVID, but it's level four for uh, just arbitrary uh, enforcement of, um, of, of, of laws and regulations related to movement, uh, that there have been cases where uh, uh, U.S. citizens have entered the country and uh, been placed in quarantine, even though they've got negative tests, uh, not been able to avail themselves of services of the U.S. Embassy, arrested on trumped-up charges. Uh, that's increased in the last uh, few months. And now State Department saying, don't travel there. Uh, they've told their, their consulate staff in Shanghai that you can get out. Uh, you should leave, in fact, uh, because it's not safe for you anymore. Uh, so there's a lot of challenges in China right now, and they've done a lot of harm to themselves and their reputation on a number of different levels with the, with Western countries and even non-Western countries. We see now in, uh, we know India and China have not been exactly best of friends of late, but um, the Indian uh, University Grant Commission Grants Commission has also put out uh, a statement this past week that they are warning students that those who have gone to China or have been doing their work at Chinese universities online, that those degrees would be invalid. And that's a big deal. Uh, there's, a, there's been a lot of political tit-for-tat in, in recent months between India and China. They've had their border crises. They've had uh, uh, flare-ups over uh, Chinese social media apps and tracking of uh, Indian students, Indian individuals, uh, and that uh, there's been 50 Chinese apps that have been banned in India. So things aren't all rosy with uh, with between India and China, but uh, certainly there's a lot of elements of that relationship that could uh, drive some wedges in larger geopolitical uh, campaigns down the road. So we'll see how that plays out. But right now, as it comes to when it comes to support for Russia, they're not budging. The, they're not coming out and saying no or, or condemning Russia at all for their actions of invading a sovereign nation. 
no matter the pretext, uh, you see them really in lockstep. And that's, that's interesting to see how, how and if and when that continues uh, to uh, cloud those relationships with those other BRICS countries with the West. So more on that to be sure. And it does impact what we do in international education. Uh, no doubt about that. Now, our final question of the day, how anti-Russian should we be in international education? Now, when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine, a number of colleagues, uh, particularly those in the UK, uh, were particularly exercised by uh, this ruthless, naked aggression against the Ukraine, against Ukraine, against its people. Uh, and against civilian populations, and there has been, the, with Russia's every denial, uh, it only and the, the evidence that the West sees and on the on its TV, uh, TVs and uh, on internet on our social media feeds every day, uh, over the last fifty plus days now of the conflict, we see uh, a, a real aggression towards uh, Ukraine uh, that has. Uh, the true motivations of which uh, we've seen everything from uh, Putin's claim that they're trying to denazify the Ukraine uh, to uh, fears in the West, and particularly in Eastern European countries, that he's uh, Putin's main end goal is to recreate the Soviet Union in terms of a buffer zone in Eastern Europe for uh, for Russia. And you see attempts to put in puppet governments. That was the plan initially, apparently, to put in a puppet government if they could have taken Kiev and and gotten rid of uh, President Zelensky. Uh, so we see a lot of negativity in the West towards Russia, and rightly so, uh, that Putin uh, has basically clamped down on any non-state-run media that would potentially uh, promote a, a view other than a Kremlin view of what's happening in the Ukraine, that it's not a war or an invasion, it's a special military operation, and you can't say otherwise. If you do, you'll be arrested and put in jail. You saw thousands of protesters arrested in the first few weeks uh, of, the, of the invasion. Uh, you then saw Putin have this big uh, rally in a soccer stadium in Russia, in Moscow, uh, just to keep uh, the Russian sheep uh, fed with their uh, with their propaganda, uh, the Kremlin's propaganda. So, on face value, uh, you see uh, dissent being quickly quashed. Uh, no freedom of expression. You see. Uh, Universities, uh, rectors, whether willingly or not, signing letters of support uh, for uh, for Putin's special military operation. Uh, you've seen a number of uh, professors from those institutions uh, and students leave. Uh, Russian students uh, leave if they could uh, to the West. Now that travel has been basically uh, prohibited. Uh, into Russia, it's all they have to go out like they're trying to flee uh, a hostage situation almost. So you you have a lot of difficulties in in terms of putting any faith in terms of what Russia is doing uh, and trust in what they're doing. And um, there's 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 real valid concerns and uh, reasons why relationships need to be reevaluated uh, with Russia. Uh, as a country with Russian institutions. You see the businesses that are divested from Russia and pulled out uh, that are losing their assets probably in the process if they had physical locations in, uh, in Russia. Uh, you see, uh, you see uh, a number of institutions divest from any uh, 
uh, investments in Russian companies or Russian uh, in Russia itself. Uh, you see uh, institutional partnerships shut down as MIT did within the first day of the of the war. Uh, yeah, in early in the towards the end of February. So a lot has happened that has uh, basically indicated and shown that the West and UK, US, Australia, Canada are anti-Russian, that we are divesting from Russia in, in every, ways po every way possible. And when we think about what we do in international education, about opening, opening borders, opening minds, uh, having conversations across cultures to uh, really uh, Im share the importance of education uh, in our lives, one of the kernels of that is uh, is is it's people to people diplomacy. It is uh, it is an effort to uh, display dispel of uh, uh, false pretenses we might have or misconceptions we have about people from other nations. And what are we doing now in the West as a result of this? And there's a great article from Hans De Witt and. Um, and Phil Altbeck uh, that I, I'm sharing, I'll be dropping the link to in the chat. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's one of the first uh, kind of counterpoints I've seen uh, in international ed news that is saying, are we going too far here uh, in, in terms of our rush to disengage, as, as they say. Uh, they make the claim in the title of the article, in the mad rush to disengage, are, we join in Putin's extremism. And a part of this is uh, a natural extension of cancel culture that uh, runs amok in, in the Western world. That uh, if you cross a certain line, you are, uh, your career is over. Uh, you, you will lose your business. Uh, you will be, um, you'll be put, uh, put to the sword on social media and ruined, in effect. Uh, and that's in effect what we've done with Russia. Uh, with we, though, though we, those that who are in the business certainly know that Putin is to blame, and he wields such absolute power in Russia that you can't cross him if you want to uh, keep your keep your jobs. Uh, and what we do in the West by uh, cutting ties, divesting, whatever we might be doing. And the article makes the claim that we go too far. We're doing what Putin's doing. We're separating ourselves from uh, what, uh, what, what, cutting ties with a country, with institutions with which we've had great relationships in the past uh, and had maybe ex extensive personal relationships with uh, faculty, staff, advisors, whatever it might be in, in that country. So if you're a Russian student in the U.S. right now or any Western power, uh, you are keeping your head down uh, because of what's happening. Uh, and it's a shame that it's happening this way because they're going to be targeted uh, if they stick their heads above the parapet too much. Um, uh, certainly, uh, we hope that doesn't get to this, but uh, what happened with uh, Chinese and Asian students in the United States with the pandemic first taking on that uh, they were the targets of a Asian hate uh, in the United States and other countries. Uh, are we opening Russian students or uh, Ukrainians by, by, by mistake to similar treatment in the future if we continue this? So it's not necessarily I'm uh, saying that there, need, there needs to be some middle ground here. I think that, that there probably does need to be, but it's too early, I think, for that to be in the common zeitgeist of where we are. 
uh, with uh, our relationship with Russia and Russian institutions. But it's hard to hard to maintain those relationships when they uh, those institutions that we might have had partnerships with still maintain uh, such allegiance to Putin. And uh, uh, when this all blow, blows over, if it does, I don't know. But certainly, it's a new era we're entering. But uh, it be interesting. It will be interesting to hear those stories about those that were forced to sign letters and, and toe the line. So that's all we have for you this week on the Roundup. But a lot of food for thought. A lot of deep issues in this one. Sorry for going a little bit in depth on the intellectual side, but certainly it's these are topics that uh, we need to be conscious of in our day to day and how we operate in inter- international education and uh, maintain our principles really. And uh, in, in the end, and what's involved in doing that. So until we talk next week, I wish you all the very best and have a wonderful day. Cheers. <music>